Welcome to Get Your Rocks Off with Mick Wall, the world's leading rock and metal writer. Each fortnight, Mick will unpack rock and roll stories. Stories that you probably won't find in print. So pour yourself a Jack and Coke and get ready to get your rocks off. That's a good idea. See, uh, John already talking, even as we begin recording. That's how Verite... This, uh, that's how Verite Get Your Rocks Off has become, featuring myself, Mick Wall, legendary figure in the world of rock and metal writing, writing, and his, and riding shotgun, <laughs> his disciple, metal, metal mate, and all-round bad egg, yeah. John Hartman. Badass with my pop shield. Let's get, yeah, actually, yes. You let's to talk let's, about that, didn't you? Because I turned up today with yeah, a condom that you've placed over your microphone. It's a sort of a, a it's a sort of a mask come condom yeah, to fit with the modern age. Right. We're all masked these days, Mick. You may not have heard out here in the countryside, but you have actually brought this thing and attached it I have, to your because protuberance. Because I back, because being a, a professional, oh. I, listen, I listened back to our second podcast, which was about uh, David Coverdale. And as you know, there was a slight hint of human error about the recording. Yeah, there was something meant, I feel that you did wrong, yeah, which affected was, my I, microphone. I, I talked incredibly loudly throughout it. And, and yes. As, as a result of that, I think people virtually felt I was almost spitting in their ear yeah so yeah. i've now got a pop shield prophylactic which right. when i pronounce words like pop shield right will stop it from seeming as i'm but, spitting in their ear but what about when i start to well, <laughs> exactly that's what's going to happen get yourself a pop shield that's get what yourself I a pop shield yeah. well we're, soon we will have get your rocks off branded pop uh, shields, pop shields. Yeah. You All your get own yourself stuff. so one. when you start your own podcast you can get one Get yourself one. Yeah. Get as it if, as if get just you. anyone could throw together a podcast. Exactly. You see, this is this is this is the, the level we operate on. Yeah. That is not easily attainable it, for the mere not. amateur. No. The fact that you just walked in here and said, "What are we doing it about today again?" <laughs> ah, okay. Well, on that subject, yeah. um, John and I, uh, we have. You know, we go deep in our pre 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 production yeah. planning on what we're going to do, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And we were talking about uh, following the Coverdale. Well, not following because that was like three podcasts yeah. ago. But yeah. um, other great figures in rock and metal, the the majesties, the you know the 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 overlords, the greats, the overlords. I yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. So, and we were saying, okay, well, we started with Coverdale. We will do more singers, obviously, because yeah. they are like the over overlords, yeah. crying they in are. the rain. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but I thought, well, why don't we flip it and, and why don't we do one of the great drummers of the <laughs> rock and metal era? And when you say flip it, see, these people are the, you know, they're the they're not the overlords. They're the they're the underlings. They're the they're, you know. There's the old joke, isn't it? You know what you call someone who hangs around with a musician? Yeah, a drummer. Right. How do you tell? How do you tell when a drummer's at the door? 
you know, the knocking speeds up. <laughs> all of those, we're going to do all those gags today. So yeah. drummers, pin back your ears. You're going to love it. Yeah, you're going to yeah. love it. Yeah. Um, uh, most drummers don't know how to operate uh, devices, so no, none of them yeah. will ever hear this. Let's <laughs> let's mention true. that straight away, unless they're hitting it, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But no, drummers, I think, are great because um, just they're they're even more mental than singers because singers definitely are mental. I mean, who would want to stand out there thrusting their thrusters at a at a at an audience yeah. of well wishers? Well, I mean, I think that's that's the myth, isn't it? That the drummer is the stupid one in the band. He's like the, the goalie. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, exactly. He's not the good enough to play up play front. On the outfit. Yeah, yeah. He's but he can go back there and stop yeah. people having fun. And how do people become drummers? That's the thing. You never know, do you? Bands always got one, but where do they come from? Well, that's interesting. It's just, it's just like, oh, I know a guy up the road who plays the drums. You know. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's not like um, it's not like you know. I I bought an old acoustic it's a, guitar. It's like everyone with one plays. Guitar, everyone plays guitar, mm. and there are guitar shops and yeah. you, know, you go in them and everyone's yeah. playing Stairway to Heaven or whatever it is they play, you know, to practice Enter Sandman or whatever. That's popular, isn't it? Enter Sandman. Never you, heard of it. Go no, on. no, no. If you're in a guitar shop, oh, okay. you play that, you know, and everyone looks at you in the shop going, yeah. And they go, hey, is that James Hetfield? Is that actually him? I think that could be him in disguise. Yeah, it could be him. It's him. But there's no there's no drum shops, are there? No. You don't go down the high street and go, there's a drum shop. It's sort of chicken and egg as well. I mean, how do you... Because it must cost a fortune to buy a drum kit. You need a lot of What if of stuff. you do all that and you get home and you go, yeah. bang, bang, oh, fuck this. See, the other reason drummers always get in bands is because they've got drums, they've always got a car. You, you, when you read rock books, all that sort of thing, which I... Tr- you know, or, or, write to, you know, or, or write them. Especially when you write them. Research and write them. You always find, oh, yeah, you know, so we hired him because he had a car. So yeah. he could get the drums to rehearse, he could get us to rehearsals yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you know, whether it's Keith Moon or John Bonham or Nico McBrain or Lars Tommy Aldridge. Stars. Or you you kind of you've oh, I've gone you've kind of you kind of killed the headline <laughs> punchline moment. Um they're all just batshit crazy. Crazier, I think, than any member of the band. And it is because you've got to be mental to want to hit a drum, but also to be stuck at the back, you, you kind of overcompensate. Yeah. And Lars Ulrich, who is the drummer we're going to be talking about today. Oh, Lars, right. okay, cool. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking about you, Lars. And whenever he plays a show, he's pretty much standing up the whole time yeah, with yeah. both arms in the air. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was the, wasn't he the one who made them play in the round? So, in fact, he was not at the back. Do you know? He that was, was in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. The star of the show. Yeah. Stars. Yeah. Stars. stars. That was one of his nicknames, wasn't that it? That was his only nickname as far as I know. Uh, early, well, no, Lars has been called many things, yeah. but I think yeah. stars was stars, a, yeah. an acceptable yeah. nickname. Yeah. <laughs> Because not only is he a star, he I'm not going to say groupie, because that would be harsh, yeah. but certainly a super fan. Yes. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's who where he, he is. That's where, and that's where he came from, yeah. Very right, so, so let's yeah. begin at the beginning. Yeah. Today, in our, in our occasional ongoing series, Great Figures in Rock, yes. today we're going to do... Lars Ulrich. Excellent. Right, now... Um, Lars was born in Copenhagen, Denmark. See, now, he, he tried to give you the impression 
that this was off the cuff and that we just <laughs> thought up last week. But no, he probably spent the week researching. Yes, because yeah. I'm known for that yeah. level, you see, research. that level of research and investigation. I was going to say, Lars was born in Copenhagen in, I don't know what year. No. The he's early a, 60s. Yeah, he's yeah. probably, what, late 50s now, is he? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Dad was a successful tennis professional. Yes. But also a great jazz fan. And Lars uh, once told me that um, he'd, been around Lars himself had been around the world at least half a dozen times long before he ever picked up a drumstick or thought about being in a band yeah just literally uh, because his father you know took, uh, toured the world at all the major slams yeah yeah of course he did and did did young stars avail himself of a, a racket at any point well he did yeah, he, yeah yeah he uh he, in fact he was one of denmark's young tennis stars they all say that though don't they it's like it's like it, they all say that it was steve harrison i was on west ham's books when i was a kid <laughs> they all say that is it true you're you know you've written the definitive that's the word you're looking the for definitive, definitive book about metallica is it true that's what we want to know okay. was he any good at tennis well right i mean not not wishing to give any of my books a plug no end tonight official uh not official no, end tonight, not, definitely not official. official end tonight the yeah. definitive biography of metallica yeah. <laughs> you can still get it now um uh, he was, yeah. I mean, he won uh, youth tournaments <laughs> and he ended up at uh, the Nick Bollettieri Academy yeah. in Miami. Yes, yes, yes. Well, and there were, you know, a lot of players came out of there. But what age would he have been then? Teenager. Yeah. I mean, that was essentially why. That is the reason why they left Denmark to go and live oh, in yeah. America. Yeah. Um, the trouble was, as so many kids find, whether it's football or tennis or whatever it is, uh, you're the best guy at your school. You're the best guy in your county. Yeah. And then you go to one of these places and you find out you're like 150th in yeah, the list. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, they're yeah. just amazing, yeah. much more talented Because at his age, I mean, I'm just thinking, at his age you would have been sort of playing Becker, you know, Boris Becker, Agassi, maybe. Stick, Agassi, Sampras, yeah. He wouldn't have stood a chance against those. Can you imagine stars against those guys? Jesus Christ. Hey. Six love, six hey. love, six love. Hey, hey, don't, yeah. don't, don't count me out yeah. so easy. Game match, Sampras. Game set and match. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's a fair point. He but imagine... He wouldn't beat Serena Williams, mate. Well, yeah, but would Serena Williams she be able to play the... Him. Yeah, but would Serena Williams be able to play the exactly. drums yeah. on Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse <laughs> or whatever it was called? What was it called? I don't know. Yeah, on the first Metallica album. I don't know anything the about four... the first Metallica album. <laughs> <laughs> There's no point asking me. I re- I'll tell you something. Metal about the, Militia. Tell you about the first Metallica album. I remember being a student at Farnborough Tech, which is where I went before I began my which is one of those magical el- career. Which is one of those elite academies <laughs> in the UK where such it's a bit famous like names as... Um, it's a bit like Eton College. Eton it's a, College? It's a bit like Eton College, but it's in Farnborough. Right, right. Okay. So was Boris so, there with you? Yeah, no, he was at Eton College. All right, okay. But uh, just up the road, there was a record shop. And I remember we used to go in there of a, of a lunchtime to have a look. And we were, I remember going in there and seeing the cover of Kill 'em All. Yeah. Which I believe is the Metallica album you are talking about. I, I believe it is, yes. On the front of Kill 'em All is a lump hammer 
with some blood pulled around. <laughs> right, that's the cover, essentially, of Kill 'Em All. I'm not saying they rushed it and count the first thing that came into their head. Or, or spent but, all of yeah, the $50 yeah, the, budget yeah, on, it, on yeah. that. But that was it. And I actually remember picking it up and going, these guys will never get anywhere. <laughs> Seriously, I did. I, they'll never, I, we will never hear their name again. Listen, I never thought they'd get anywhere right up to the fifth album. I mean, yeah. um, to me, uh, if they had become as big as Motorhead... Which is basically not that not big. Not that big, yeah. I mean, big in England. They were doing, yeah, they were doing well. They were doing well, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, I mean... You because a bit more scene setting probably needs to be done. Stars is in the academy. And so he's in the academy. Getting thrashed by the... You know, he turns up... Even the guy who sweeps the courts is yeah. better at tennis than Lars Ulrich. Although I do repeat, I, Pete Sampress tried to play the drums... On Master yeah, of Puppets. We've got that. We've got yeah. that. Yeah, well, I just, you know, you know yeah, I feel yeah. like it needed But that's repeating. where we were in the story. Okay, yeah. so... Um, Tennis dreams shattered. Exactly. But at the same time, as happens to a lot of teenage uh, teenagers, in this case, uh, just as he's figuring out he's not going to be the wor- next world number one, yeah. um, he becomes obsessed with rock music. He becomes obsessed with buying LPs, as yeah. the older generation still call them. Um, and in particular, heavy metal, rock yeah. music. Yeah. Now, that uh, interest went back to, his, you know, when he first started buying records back home in Denmark, and his uh, favourite band was Deep Purple. Yeah. But because he came from this very kind of entitled, uh, and in Denmark, you know, uh, famous background, um, his dad took him, to the hotel where Deep Purple was staying. Yeah. And he was able to hang out and, yeah. and get autographs yeah. and and uh and Lordy he, Lordy was at the bar riffling his money. He was. Lordy was at the bar. Big yeah. wedge and a yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in Denmark that doesn't wash because I believe, I mean again, research. Isn't doesn't Denmark have something like the highest standard of living anywhere in the world or something? It's, it's Denmark or Japan or something. That, They've got an incredibly high standard of living there. Right, yeah. right. So yeah. stars will be, you know, he's like little Lord Fauntleroy, really. It, see, that's he's who he is. He's great at tennis, but he, you know, he's... He's great at he, tennis, yeah. loves purple, yeah. knows purple. Yeah. So, hey! So he turns up at the hotel. <laughs> turns up at the hotel. There's the perps at the and, bar. And there's Pacey. Yeah, Pacey. Because oh, Richie's not there, obviously. We know that. No, he's in a room with black yeah. candles somewhere, yeah. Yeah. communicating but psychically bet, with his Rich- nemesis, Jimmy Page. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, well, but I bet, bet Stars is like, Ooh, can't I say hi to Richie? <laughs> that would have been his thing. Well, his favourite drummers were Pacey. And oh, so he was, was he drumming at this point? Because I would have thought he would have been very young when Purple were still going. That's a good question. Uh, I Not think... that I want to piss on your research. No, no, thanks, thing. thanks, yeah, John. Well, I'll just have to hang on. Let me all just the uh, rifle through my... All the stories my... in that Metallica book are true. Let me just go through my many pages of uh, backup notes here. Um, I, I, basically, I don't fucking know. But here's so the deal. This is, this is before they went to Florida, maybe. So yes. Oh, no, this is interest. before Florida. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just saying, I'm just kind of leaping forward yeah, a yeah, bit. Yeah, I've got you. I've got so you. we're not here all day <laughs> in Denmark, okay? Um, his favourite drummers as a kid were Ian Pace yeah. and Neil Peart yeah. from Rush. Which he's is, everyone's favourite drummer. I mean, but it also explains why Lars on those first few albums 
just couldn't keep a simple beat, yeah. but had to Overplayed go... Overplayed Very first time I ever met Lars um, uh, was when they were recording the Master of Puppets album in Copenhagen. And I said to him, and it was a genuine... It's about the only thing I was curious about, uh, you know, about him at the time. I said, how come on all the Metallica songs, just as you get going good, it stops and changes? So yeah. you'll be like, you know, <laughs> and he looked at me like it never occurred to him before. But now I realise it was because he could only manage to keep the beat for a few you know, 60 seconds Bars, yeah. before you go into... Well, I mean, you know, that we are the sum of our influences, aren't we? That That's what's happened to him. He's listened to Neil Peart and... Yeah. As every drummer does. Yeah. It's a bit like reading Hunter S. Thompson when you're a young, <laughs> aspiring music writer, you know. All of a sudden it blows your tiny mind. You go, hang on, you can write... You can just write whatever the hell you want. And, and, and people, so I will, yeah. only it won't be as good. good. Yeah, it won't be as good because yeah. I'm not Hunter Thompson. Exactly. Yeah. And it takes a while to get over that and find your own way and your own voice. It certainly took Lars. <laughs> it certainly <laughs> took Some Lars about say. five albums <laughs> yeah, yeah. to uh, learn to hold the beat. But because let's let's also just jump back again slightly because talking of, of, the, of influence and the anxiety of influence and all of those things... The reason you, I suspect you've picked out Lars of all the drummers we could possibly talk about is he has this huge influence over his band. Well, he's the leader and of the band. He's the leader of it's the band. It's his and band. I, I, think, I think this has its roots in what you were talking about, his background and yeah. the fact he's now in America. He's very influenced by these uh, bands that he's coming to love. And he's not the kind of guy who just holds back and goes, well, I'll just collect albums and maybe I'll look in the back of sounds as if there's anyone I can trade bootlegs with. He's like, no, where, hang on, the tour date's right. Get me the car, I'm off, I'm, you know, I'm off on the tour. And, absolutely, to yeah. the point where um, uh, I think maybe 17, 18, he flies to London because he's become recently obsessed with the new wave of British heavy metal. So we're talking circa 1980. Yeah. He's mad for Motorhead. And he goes to their office and hooks up and gets to know Lemmy to the point where he then becomes the... When you say well, goes to their office, you should point out Lemmy didn't have an office. Well, no, his manager... It, it, exactly, yeah. Lemmy didn't, Lemmy didn't go to the office every day. Well, no, actually, Lemmy did go to the in office suit, every day. In a suit and tie. Not in a suit and tie, no. Not no. To work. As, he would go to the office every day to order everybody around... <laughs> To get him his Jack Daniels and his okay, speed, okay, yeah. and why aren't you spending more time promoting Motorhead? And yeah. um, uh, Doug, his manager, I, I, I used to have an office literally <laughs> a few doors away, yeah. and you'd see him in there every single day. Doug said he would, his old manager said he would drive us mental. <laughs> We'd see him strolling up in the afternoon, and we go, oh, fuck's sake, he's back again, you know. Um, you know, those white boots. Yeah, He yeah. used to send girls in the office to go out and buy the white boots. Oh, really? And they'd say, Lemmy, you can't... You've got to come and try them on. No, you get them. I'll try them on. No good. Oh, you take them back. <laughs> the white... But don't yeah. forget, make them white. Yeah, got to be white. With black white, heels. With black, black yeah, heels. Yeah. yeah. And black on so the cool. inside. Yeah, black yeah. yeah. You don't see it. 
but you know it's there yeah. from the way he walks yeah, exactly. yeah. and the way he talks. Uh, so Lars, being this sort of privately educated, very... I mean, Lars was at the Rolling Stones Hyde Park concert in 1969. He's getting, he's getting older. This is, I reckon he's in his 60s. Maybe no, no, 70. no, no. Maybe no. Lars is in his 70s. This is just the way he was brought up. I mean, his dad was also a jazz musician. Yeah. Uh, mother was very into the arts. And he told me that uh, from about the age of nine, he would get himself ready and go to school every day because every morning he'd come down and be stepping over bodies of all these old hippies that are drunk and stoned and still there from the night before with Miles Davis playing in the background. And he'd have to go, oh, no, and, you know, get himself ready and go Mm. to school. So he he was a rich kid um, who... Bohemian, a rich bohemian kid. A rich bohemian kid with a Danish work ethic. Yeah. And a fucking love of heavy metal, particularly British heavy metal. So... Um, I mean, he comes over, he meets Lemmy. There's a, there's a, there's a fantastic night where Lemmy uh, has Lars hang out, spend the night with Lemmy. So th- there's obviously no going to bed. Yeah. Uh, there's just staying up for two or three days, at the end of which Lars throws up so volcanically that they lit- Lemmy literally has to put him on a couch and put a blanket over wow. him and pat his head. And But here's the great thing that I always love is that by the time Lars went back to America, he'd gone back having secured the job as being mo- the president of Motorhead's American fan club. Right, yeah, yeah. A hotly were, contested position amongst the CEOs of America. Hotly contested in 1980, yeah. not least for the fact that Motorhead hadn't had any records <laughs> yeah, in, in America, America at that point. Yeah, and no one knew who they were. No yeah. one knew who they were. Yeah. Besides a few aficionados yeah, like yeah. Uh, Lars, they did actually release their first record that year, which was Ace of Spades, and it flopped and died a terrible mm. death. But Lars, you know, uh, got the whole fan club thing together, yeah. and off the back of that, um, formed his own group, which in his head was was kind of going to be sort of Motorhead esque. Neil Peart. Yeah. How do you say that, Neil Peart? I, well, I believe it's Peart, isn't it? I is mean, it that's Peart? What, is that one of those things that he said he would pronounce it Peart? Right, but that's the sort of Canadian but accent it's, thing, it, isn't it is, it? yeah, probably. It, it's yeah. probably I mean, we Peart. Said Peart. We always said Neil, Neil Peart. Peart. Yeah. It's Peart. And I think it is. Peart. Yeah, for the, eh? Eh? For, for, the purpose, Peart. for the purposes of this podcast, it's Neil Peart. Okay, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. A, A, yeah. Canadian accent, see, I can do them. Um, yeah, so uh, what I love, though, as you said, is that he's the leader of the band. But there is no band, so where does the band come from? Well, it, it, a school, school jamming, you know, jamming with, with, with uh, like-minded cats. Yeah, yeah. But the trouble was there weren't many like-minded cats because he lives in L.A., and everybody at this point is into Motley Crue, yeah. Rats, the greats, you know, the greats of the era. And, um, in fact, very early Metallica, uh, there was a certain kind of flirtation with that. That uh, I mean, to the point where right. I think you can find pictures of James Hetfield in, like, spandex. Yeah, of course you can. Of course he did. He tries to pretend <laughs> he didn't. Of course he did. 
They were always looking for a proper frontman, though. James yeah, was yeah. the James was the guitarist who wasn't any good, so he was like rhythm guitar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dave Mustaine was the genius guitar player, uh, but also not a proper singer. Yeah, and then they had Lars on the drum drums who who wasn't a proper singer or drummer. <laughs> But he was president of the Motorhead fan club. And he was the one who had the money and the house yeah. they would go over to and yeah, practice at. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, we make fun of it, but huge passion. I mean, at the end oh, of the day, oh, yeah, 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 for a guy yeah. that couldn't yeah. play drums yeah. and struggled for many years, mm. he's, still, drums, because, he's yeah. still the most famous uh, metal drum, one of the most oh. famous metal drummers I've, I've, I've ever. I've seen the film, I've seen the end of the Metallica film where he's selling his art collection. For about yeah, you know, so we can sit here laughing. He had an art collection that went for about two hundred million dollars. He, he really did. That's really where drumming did. got him. Yeah, I tell you what else. I know we're leaping around here, which is unlike us. We yeah, stick, we to, stick a strict, to the exact timeline, chronological order. Yeah. But seeing as you mention it, um, in the early nineties, um, I, I I had spent a lot of time with Lars and Metallica in the eighties, and so on and so on. And then by about 93, 94, post-Black yeah, Album... They're too big, they're, frankly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, mean, I remember doing a phone interview with him once for Raw magazine. <laughs> you, you and I yeah, uh, propped up. We bossed we, we propped it up. Yeah. Um, uh, and we did a phone interview, right? For fuck knows what, something going on. And literally, three days later, he was in London... Uh, was having dinner with friends of mine mm. and uh, a famous photographer and one of the <laughs> others who so yeah. will remain nameless. Yeah. And um, and I could have gone to that dinner, but I was I was I was completely for a moment. I mean, I got it after two moments, but I thought, why would why would we do a phone interview yeah, if he's going to be here in three days? We might even have dinner. Because you want to see me, yeah. you know. I might be at the dinner. Oh, hey, Greg. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was hoping you would be here. <laughs> That's why I only spoke to you on the phone <laughs> three days, days ago. ago. Yeah, yeah. And after 20 minutes, went, hey, I got to yeah. go, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but at that point, uh, I was discussing this with uh, our mutual friend, the famous rock photographer. Photographer, yeah. And he said, one thing you got to understand, Mick, is that uh, where, where Lars lives right now, he has a fountain in his courtyard that is bigger than your house. Wow. Yeah. 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 And I thought, yeah, well, you know, put it into perspective. It's true, isn't it? You know, Lars has moved there, on. There comes a point, yeah, where bands just of that size no longer need who they formerly needed. No, they don't. And I am not at all bitter no. about no. that. No, and his art collection, I mean, yeah, good luck to the guy. He had a good eye, as they say. He certainly he did. He had a and good I tell eye. You, uh, Bascat, wasn't it? Bascat was his big... Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, he had all he had uh, Jackson Pollock's, yeah. Warhol's. Yeah, he, I mean, anyone could get... You know, I, th I think the at that point everyone knew Pollock was worth money. They knew Warhol was worth money. I think he... He You're talking do, about Jean-Paul Basquiat. Yeah, yeah, he did extremely well. What is it, Basquiat or Basquet? I don't know. It's a bit like Piet or Pert, isn't it? Yeah, I think in this case, when he was, when he was yeah, mincing around New York, <laughs> I knew, did they? But 
the point being, the, 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 I remember the huge canvas, and he had it in his living room in the house with a fountain probably. You know? yeah. It's a huge canvas. and I mean, you, you need a big house to hang a, big, a, a huge canvas like that. It, but that was the one that went for the real money. He did. He also had so much artwork. He had them in those proper, those special storage containers yeah. out in the desert. Yeah. But they're at a controlled temperature yeah. so that the, the paintings remain yeah. intact. I think that's a kind of indicative of his character, wasn't it? He had that, you know, as we're saying, he, he, he was obsessed by the bands and he got all their albums to the point where he became a member of the fan club. Yeah. He was very obsessive, as we will get to, over Metallica and you know, micromanaged everything that happened with Metallica. Come the point where he doesn't have to do that anymore, he's collecting art, and he can't just casually collect a bit of art that he likes to hang on the wall. He has to be the guy who's collecting art, and he builds this incredible collection. But I have to say I really admired him at the end of that film where he just said it's time to let it go. He yeah. said, I've decided to let it go, and he let it go. A lot of people can't do that. And I think he, you know, he was sort of having this kind of standing with his wife, and they were having this glass of champagne as the as the money ticked up on the sale. They were in a private room, private room, wa- watching, watching on a screen wa- from cameras, watching the the watching auction. the auction. Yeah, you know, every painting's coming up, it's going for millions of dollars, and he's drinking this champagne. But you sort of know that. Yeah, the money's great, but it's not really making a huge difference to his life. You know, he's not. He's well, already in the private yeah, room drinking exactly. champagne. He's already got the money. It's like he's kind of having this <laughs> slightly melancholic moment where he's drinking the champagne and it's great, but it's a part of his life that he's letting go of. And I yeah. thought it was a, probably the best bit of the film, I've got to be honest. That bit and the bit where, you know, Hetfield puts them all straight about the hours he's going to work, you know. <laughs> Now listen. Yeah, I can only work between two and three now. And the last guy, he's a fucking rock band. Well, not he's doing it in the last voice, but you know, he's an incense because he wants to stay up all night taking drugs. Still, but Hetfield can't do that anymore. Uh, you've We've hit on a really, ahead. you've hit on We've a really good. Ahead. No, 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 because you've hit on a really good point, which absolutely informs why Metallica, be, the main reason Metallica became as big as they did. Uh, and that is the guy is really intelligent, uh, does have fantastic taste, but is very well brought up, very well rounded. Um, fame is not uh, is this is not a guy who was the lonely guy at school who was the freak and probably would have ended up doing something dreadful and and yeah, lonesome, yeah. but got lucky as a rock star. This guy was born into success. Uh, those material things are important, yeah. but that's not the driver. Yeah. The driver is his intelligence, his personality. Yeah. And that was brilliant, what you said about how he used to collect all the records and then t- 10, 15 years later, it's all the art. Because it wasn't just the records. He, got, he was one of the first that got into the tape-swapping scene, fan scenes... And all this becomes crucial in the very early days of all through their career, but particularly in the early days of Metallica, when they really were considered the runt of the litter. Mm. I mean, I don't know how many of their fans under the age of 40 understand this, but Metallica were no hopers. No label in America were remotely interested in them. No promoters. They they if they'd had any sense. They'd have put on the makeup and the gear and yeah, uh, and yeah. written songs about girls and chicks and like Motley Crue, like Rat, like Poison, all those groups. Uh, and they didn't. They they wrote these long, twisty, epic 
metal, very British, European metal. Yeah. And hence they became bigger in Britain and America, uh, Britain and Europe before America. But during that period, it's Lars is the guy doing endless phone interviews with some bloke who does a fanzine Fans, yeah. in Idaho with probably yeah. 11 readers or three issues and you never hear of it again. No problem. Put them on the list. Lars will talk to them. And it was the same with the business. So that, you know, Metallica's early um, champion was uh, Johnny Z, um, who himself was a kind of a outsider. Very much so, yeah. Didn't uh, it, it used to be him and Marsha, his, his, his wife. wife, Marsha. They had a, wouldn't they start with a market stall of some kind, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, they know, had tape a... Tape trading on a market stall. Tape trading, it? selling records. Yeah. Um, Johnny Z was actually in prison at the time uh, he first started dealing with Lars. He would call from the payphone right. at the jail. Dare I ask what he was... Yeah. Um, it's a little bit in the dim and distant, but Johnny... We'll do something on Johnny one day specifically, but Johnny's background was Wall Street. Right. I mean, here's this bear of a man from New Jersey who loves rock and metal, the real hard stuff, but had spent... Um, his earlier working career in finance and mm. all kinds of stuff on Wall Street. And 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 as happened a lot in the uh, uh, late 70s and early 80s, there was a moment where um, some of these deals were considered beyond yeah. the legal yeah. pale. <laughs> and, and one or two insiders ended up having to do a bit a of bit time. Of, a bit of bird, as they A say. bit of bird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, nothing too drastic. And I think he was, you know, paroled and all this business. But the fact is, Johnny had manic energy. Yeah. Big love. And when Metallica first came to visit him in New Jersey, he put them all up in his house. Him and Marsha. Mm. I think him and Marsha already had their first So let's child. just say Johnny has a record label. It's called Megaforce. Well, it's chicken and egg. There's no label till Metallica come along. And he puts on a show for Metallica in New Jersey because that's his thing at the time is putting on local shows, selling tapes. And so it just it, it goes from, well, I could sell your tapes and put on a show to why don't we turn this tape into a bit of plastic and call it a record? We don't have a label. Well, I'll be my label yeah. and we'll call it Megaforce. Yeah. It's a good name. It's a great name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and but that's what happened. It was, hey kids, let's let's just do this ourselves. And Metallica literally got in. Um, what do you think they call those things? A U-Haul, and drove across from the West Coast all the way over to New Jersey, thousands of miles, to make this record. Do some shows, uh, and of course, it's on that trip that Dave Mustaine um, literally gets booted out of the band halfway across America. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and again, we will do a whole show on Mustaine at some point. Yeah. But needless to say, uh, Dave was an interesting combination of heroin addict, alcoholic, and karate black belt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is really yeah. fucked up. Yeah. And dangerous. Yeah. So Mustaine's always killing people, you know. And, and I think that, that he finally crossed the line when I think he drop kicked Hetfield or something who had had the temerity yeah. to suggest that perhaps the heroin and alcohol could possibly be sidelined while they do a just bit of... Just for a while. Just for an hour while yeah. we do a show, you yeah, know. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so that is, that's, I mean, we're not doing the story of Metallica today. We're doing the no. story of Lars. But Lars at that point, he's kind of mentored James Hetfield, who is uh, very insecure, has yeah. his own personal issues, very low self-esteem. Yeah, a tortured figure in many ways. Completely tortured. A complete opposite to Lars. Yeah. Lars is short, manicured, European, wonderful sensibilities and background. James, this outdoorsman yeah. from the American wild, untamed. I mean, in those days, Trump, you know, Hetfield would have been a sort of a, what you'd think of if you thought of as a Trump supporter. Yeah. He may still be. I, I, I have no idea. I don't want to smear anybody. No, no, no. Well, there's but, that, again, going back to the documentary, there's the great bit, having said, or already told you about all the great bits, there's a great bit where he goes off hunting bears in Russia, isn't there? Yeah. And he kills this bear, this massive bear, and then reveals that it's his kid's birthday. And it made him sad to miss his kid's birthday. <laughs> But he just had to go and kill the huge bear. In Russia? That, yeah, that was fucking minding its own business. You know? <laughs> just come out of hibernation. You see, it's my kid's birthday. Yeah. But I just... But what I really need to do... Is to be in Russia kill, in the Arctic winter... fucking bears. Absolutely blowing the shit yeah. out of some wild Russian yeah. bears in 10 feet show of snow. Show me a bear, buddy. I'll fucking show you a corpse. <laughs> Show me yeah. a Russian. Yeah, Russian. see, the that's it's the Russian thing that got me. I think it was the Russian thing. It was so, as you say, it was like so Reagan esque. You know, get over those Ruskies. You know, show them what the, the their bears ain't nothing. While Lars is Lars sitting is somewhere going, sipping champagne, yeah, going, purchasing can another basket. Can, can we finish this fucking album? Because <laughs> they're trying to make that album, aren't they? Make it a terrible album. <laughs> Really dreadful. Like, like one of, of my favourites. Yeah, and that poor old Bob Rock sitting there. I mean, he's getting about a million dollars a day, isn't yeah, he, Bob poor Rock? old Bob Rock. But, but, he, but he has to go, uh, you know, oh, last night going, oh, I thought that one was all right. It's this terrible... And Hepfield's going, same as my life day, the same as my death day. It's just awful. And you go, hang on, have you guys ever heard the Black Album? Never mind, made it. Have you have you played no, it back I'm, recently? I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there because for me, Saint Anger <laughs> is that what it was called? Yes, was, Saint Anger. Because they have a big thing of trying to think up what to call it. Yeah, I they love have that a big night. debate. Uh, Saint yeah. Anger. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's a beautiful. Thing. But they've got the guy helping them. The, the guy who's <laughs> the, the psychiatrist. The psych- yeah, he's not a psychiatrist. No, he? what is he? He's, he's a, a professional coach. Performance. He's a, coach. a life coach. Yeah, see, you and, and I could move into that area. We should try because he was again getting about a million dollars a day and was very, very keen to hold on to it. He every was time, extremely <laughs> keen to... Every, we wanted to see the job through. Every time they tried to sack him, he would say things like, well, no, I don't think we're finished yet. You're still very psychologically vulnerable. I mean, look at what happened yesterday. Did you hear what the music you were making? It was, you know... See, that guy is my conflict. hero. He's my hero, and that album is my favourite Metallica it's album. Not, after it's not. When was after the last, Lulu. Right, when was the last time you played it? I, I don't play Metallica exactly. albums. I they, never play Metallica not, albums. Yeah. Uh, uh, I just go on Spotify what's, what's and, and play on whatever. Side two? Of St. Anger. Yeah, no one knows, do they? It's yeah, but you're just... not meant to know. Okay. <laughs> you're not meant to know because as you, it's an immersive experience. As it, you go into, no, it, no, as you go into that yeah. world of St. Anger, 
you leave behind petty considerations as names of songs yeah. or See, am I the, really listening to because this? Because James had killed a bear and all the rest of it and he couldn't come up with any lyrics, could he? So they have a kind of group lyric writing session. And the life coach guy is also trying to write some lyrics because he's thinking, I could get my name on the album here, yeah, you know, if it yeah, goes well. Yeah. And then that's when, God bless him, Kirk Hammett comes up with, uh, today is my life day, the same as my death day. Yeah. I mean, what a, you know. I always yeah. knew Kirk had it in him Kirk somewhere. Had it in him. That hippie comic see, reading dope smoking fool Lars, had the pain, the pain yeah. in him somewhere. Lars so wants the album to come out and be good. He's almost, you know, he's doing the best drumming he can over this lyric. Well, I'm going to I'm going to stop you there again yeah, go on. because when you say his best drumming, yeah. The sound of the drums on that album sounds like a man hitting a hitting a a corrugated iron roof yeah. with his shoe. But that was what they sounded like on and Justice for All as well. Ah, it, okay. Know? Well now we are now we are veering. We, we are, are veering. we're veering slightly. Let's get well let's just finish up the 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 origin story and crack on to the okay. getting so, famous. So here is James who is if you could if you could invent in every respect the opposite to Lars, here is James. He's defiantly not European he loves the image of blood in the snow from a fresh kill. Yeah. Um, his favourite band is Leonard Skinner. Yeah, yeah. Of course, of course it is. Of course it is. Who else would it be? If he was 18 now, it'd probably well, be Neil Kid Rock. Young, you should remember. <laughs> the southern man don't need him around. Don't yeah. need him around. Woo! Yeah, Neil Young. Woo! You should remember. Ronnie Van Zandt's going to kick his fucking ass. That's when he right, sees Ronnie Van Hetfield. Ro- yeah, Ronnie had the fucking yeah, toothpaste, didn't, yeah, didn't mess about. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and they form a band because... Yeah. La- La- and Johnny Z puts it, you know, Johnny Z's... And out comes yeah. the first album, yeah. Kill Em All, which came <laughs> well, from a Cliff Burton uh, response to Johnny coming in because the original album cover was a, a toilet bowl with a fist coming That's out of it right. with a sword. Yeah. yeah. And Johnny Z comes in and says, guys, we got a problem. Walmart say they won't stock mm. it. And Cliff Burton goes, kill them all. Yeah. And at that point they went, ah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Especially James, he's already thinking ahead to the bears. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kill. In fact, it was originally called Kill All the Bears. <laughs> yeah. But they, they yeah. amended it. And with a little bracket at the start, I will. Yeah, you know, and, and in the least one day, yeah, 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 with my anger, yeah, my saint, my saint anger, anger. <laughs> and my big gun that I got for loads of money. So the first album comes out, um, and it's not, you know, uh, uh, it's got that uh, song on you were talking about, uh, yeah, one with the different bits, the four. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. I think it was just the Four Horsemen. Yeah, but they are meant to be of the Apocalypse. One of the... This is a ridiculous aside, but I remember... remember You remember when we used to travel to LA? We used to be allowed to go to LA. Yep, yep. And there used to be a flight that left London at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And because of the time difference, it would arrive in LA about sort of, I don't know, eight at night or something. But you'd had this big gap. In it. So you're knackered, but it's it's sort of, it's just eight at night. You just going out. You got to LAX, get in the cab, up the road, 
on this night going to see the Black Crows, the Black Crows, baby, you know, in LA at the Roxy or wherever it was. It was uh, the Roxy, yeah. I was there. Yeah. Oh, well, that, that gig was a very strange one because it was like the marquee, yeah. but in LA, because yeah. I remember, I think Malcolm And was with there. some tables. I was, I was there with Paul Elliott. And the support band come on, and it's the Four Horsemen. Oh, right. And there were five of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so jet-lagged. Me and Paul, I just remember me and Paul finding this hilarious. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> There's five Four Horsemen. So jet-lagged. The review had to be in the next day or something. Or the review was just this nonsense about the fact there were five Four Horsemen. <laughs> Completely ignored the Black Crows, who were just on the verge of being fucking massive, you know. But yeah, but what you're missing here is, you know, that's true rebellion. That's it rock is, and roll yeah, rebellion. Yeah, yeah. See, we're called the Four Horsemen, yeah. and there's five, five of us. Yeah, yeah, think about it. Just think, think about yeah, that. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah. Let it sink in. Take a moment. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Pure re- rock rebellion. Rock rebellion. I never thought of it that way. That's but, right, yeah. But yeah, so, so Metallica begin to have success in Europe, yeah, uh, basically off the back of uh, Kerrang! magazine yeah. and, and an array of heavy metal fanzines and that very kind of devoted... Because they're long before social media, right? we always say this because there was more of a world before social yeah. media than since. Uh, but it was, it was uh, uh, pen pals, small ads in the back of music magazines, and there was a network of people that you got to know through this. So Lars had been swapping cassettes and, 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 and being completely connected to this community. And, of course, unlike in America, which really was... I mean, Motley Crue and all those groups took a while to really have any impact yeah. in the UK and Europe. Um, over here, it was uh, with the new wave of British heavy metal. It was Maiden, Saxon, Motorhead. I mean, even groups like Judas Priest and ACDC were still, they were in no way L.A. Mm. eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it really was the hardcore stuff. And so they immediately kind of connected more here. Um, and partly that was Lars's Europeanism. And I think also, you know, the other interesting figure in Lars's life is Cliff Burton. Because although Cliff was from San Francisco and, and James was from L.A., um, uh, San Francisco is, you know, the most European of any American city. Um, and uh, Cliff grew up studying classical music. He also liked to get out the guns and go hunting, but not for bear, more yeah. like small birds or yeah, chickens or tin cans yeah. or something like that. Him and uh, James, uh, Jim Martin from Faith No More. Yeah. Um, but Cliff was an accomplished musician. He wasn't listening to Motorhead. He wasn't listening to Iron Maiden or the new wave of British heavy metal. Cliff was listening to The Police. He was listening to Kate Bush. He was listening to Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. Um, He also was listening to rock and metal. But his frame of reference was much broader... And I think one of the things he really liked about what became known as thrash was because it wasn't your regular metal. It was it was slightly, in Cliff's mm. mind, avant-garde. It was slightly off. You know, it had to be kind of explained and defended. And you either knew it or you knew yeah, nothing. Yeah. And that very much appealed to Cliff. But it was his... It was his... Um, that broader sensibility that I think 
um, connected with Lars in a way that I think went straight over James Hetfield's head. I think Kirk Hammett, who becomes Mustaine's replacement, um, he used to room with Cliff on tour. And Kirk, you know, slightly more hippie background, very open to uh, that world that Cliff absolutely knew so i think it was it was those sorts of things that that stopped lars wanting metallica to be motley crew or whoever it was and made made him want them to be something more interesting mm. still uh, kick-ass metal but something just more interesting and elevated if yeah. you like yeah um uh, and, and so it becomes. So, I mean, the first album is essentially playing live in a room and recording it. There are some pretty cool uh, tracks on there, Hit the Lights. There's a couple of, you know, first song I ever wrote type yeah. stuff. Get to the second album, suddenly you've got anthems like Creeping Death, yeah. which you must know. Oh, no, I, one's good to ride the lightning. I'm more au fait with it. Um, I mean, great riff. Cracking riff. You missed your kid. Yeah, Hang on. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, that was yeah, 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 yeah. Now you're fucking talking. And then, of course, the crowning glory of of that lineup, Master of Puppets, which was my kind of entree into Metallica. Um there were so many great new bands in, in metal bands in the eighties. Yeah. I just thought they were interesting, but I didn't see them as potential world beaters. No, I don't think anybody did. In fairness, did mm. they? There's a little movement sort of springing up around them. Their contemporaries, Exodus, probably have made Bonded by Blood at that stage, haven't they? Which was a very influential record. Slayer had come along. Mustaine's, Mustaine's gone off and formed Megadeth. Megadeth. So Anthrax were. Yeah, probably coming out yeah. of New York at that point. Slightly different sphere of influence as well with Anthrax. Very urban, you know, rap type sound, wasn't it? You know, they 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 had going on. So there's a little scene. There is, emerging. which becomes known as thrash, thrash metal. Yeah, and we should mention at this point as well, Venom. You know, who were initially tied in as part of the new wave of British heavy metal, were ahead of their time. Certainly, well ahead of Metallica and these other guys, making this absolute racket you know oh they were fantastic but again with a with a, a certain sensibility you know they had their own they made up names them you know chronos and mantas and abaddon and abaddon abaddon chronos was great because chronos's real name was actually better than chronos wasn't it because his real name is conrad lant yeah and i remember if you ever used to phone his house which sometimes you had to do because he's a tremendous bloke conrad you'd ring his house okay you know his mum or something would pick up yeah is Kronos there? <laughs> Which you feel ridiculous, you know. And you see someone go, Comrade! <laughs> they come out. But a tri- may, may I speak to Kronos? Yeah, yeah. But Conrad! A, yeah, Conrad, yeah. you want you want the food? But a terrific guy, you know. And and they they very much had this sounded like no one else. I no, mean, they really Venom didn't. at the time sounded like no one else. I played that amazing show at Hammersmith, the seventh date of hell on the day of a strike or something, wasn't it? And no one went. That that was the first time I saw them and I was absolutely it reminded me of the very first time I saw Motorhead. Yeah. Um 
and I can't think of anybody else that impressed me that much first time seeing them. But I've got to mention here, because it's almost like a tradition, it seems. You know, you mentioned how the four horsemen yeah. came on and there were five, five. of them. Yeah. Venom, the seven dates of hell, yes. was actually only five dates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two of them got cancelled through lack yeah, of well, tickets. I mean, that, that happens, doesn't it? You know. that two of them got cancelled through lack of tickets, and then the Hammersmith Odeon. What I I'll never forget laughing at this on stage. They had that huge upside down cross yeah. with light bulbs around. That's all the right. Edge, yes. Apart from a few that weren't working, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and didn't there was some it. it there's something like it was the day of a tube strike or something like that. Something happened. Something satanic. Yeah, and in the already sort of reasonably small crowd was reduced even further. But to their credit, it still became a legendary gig. Oh, you know, totally. I can a, picture it in my yeah, mind right yeah. now. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I have to say the only other, you know, you talking about that effect. I remember the first time I saw Slayer, which was at the Hammersmith Odeon, and I think it must have been on maybe the South of Heaven tour. Something like that. They were certainly approaching their majestic peak because I always thought they were the best of those bands. Yeah. Know? Certainly the most single-minded. And I remember walking in, it was that typical sort of Kerrang entrance where you go a bit late, you know. Because you'd, be <laughs> you'd be in been the in the pub yeah, next you'd be door the, yeah, you'd go, oh, let's with go, Neil Murray. Yeah, give, them, give them a couple of songs and we'll go. And walking in, and Jesus Christ, it just hit you, the smell. I mean, the smell of the crowd, because it was all teenage boys. Smothered head blood. Smell, yeah, headbang, And just this noise on stage, this black wind of death coming from the stage, the smell, the sound. And it was just overwhelming. And it sort of pulsed like something truly evil. Yeah. It was amazing. Oh, no, south of heaven. Da, no, 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 no. And it, was, it really was an astonishing thing to see. Astonishing. And you had Metallica at that point were doing the same sort of thing. And as you say, uh, you know, Megadeth and Anthrax. And all of a sudden, by this point, it's a scene. It's a, it's a definable thing. You can say, well, this, you know, they are all part of this thing. And we're calling it thrash or death or whatever you want to call it. But well, yeah. I always like thrash because you know no one in America knew what you wouldn't give someone a good thrashing. No, in America, <laughs> and it was no. it was Xavier Russell, yeah, of course, the yeah. earliest yeah. champion of Metallica, yeah. who caught them at a show in San Francisco, and came. Well, I remember with, uh, purely because of the tape trading thing, wasn't it? I remember Xavier telling me this story. He was a tape big tape trader himself, right? And was in America on tape trading business. There you go. Yeah, he was on tape trade. He used to say he used to book book the cheapest hotel he could right. in San Francisco. That's very Xavier. Yeah, very Xavier. Xavier still to this day has never bought anyone a yeah. drink. Can we just say that? <laughs> But he um, and he would yeah, and they they tape trade. You know, he'd meet his mates who were tape traders, and uh, and I think that's how he got invited to the Metallica, the famous Metallica show. I think it was another one of those shows like Venom or Slayer. Yeah. Or whatever. There were only a few people there, but everyone that was there yeah. was influenced very much by it. And I think it was that review was the first time uh, Xavier, who was very comical, you know, oh, he's a brilliant writer was... in in respect of didn't care about style or prose no, or anything like no. that. What he cared about was the yeah, he was the one who came up with putting loads of K's in, yeah. in words instead of C's. Yeah. He so. completely took yeah. a, he, he, as a writer, he was no great shakes, 
but you had to read him because yeah. he was just funny yeah. and and real. And knew about the bands, you know. Really. Totally, he was going to because I remember he wrote one of the first reviews of Marillion as well. Right, she's bizarre. You know, he's like he reviewed Metallica. He's reviewed Marillion. He came up with the phrase "chicken scratch guitar" to describe all southern rock. And it was <laughs> well, he was perfect. a big, he was a big southern, massive rock, southern rock fan. Um, massive southern, yeah. Rock fan. In fact, yeah. I, I remember spending the night at his flat. You know, in those days, no Uber or anything mm. like that. You just got completely out of control and passed out on the floor. And I remember him pulling out two squash rackets <laughs> and, and giving me a squash racket so that I could play along yeah, yeah. to Molly Hatchet. Yeah, yeah, Molly Hatchet. At yeah. deafening volume at about 1am <laughs> yeah. after while we were demolishing a bottle of wild turkey, yeah. having spent all night in the pub anyway. Yeah. Um, and he used to write Southern, S-U-V-V-E-R, yeah, yeah, yeah. Southern, Southern Rock, mate. Yeah. He's talking like that, Southern Rock yeah. and fresh. I love yeah. a bit of fresh. Well, Xavier was in the order. son of... Xavier... Again, he came up with the... In... Oh, in... Did, was oh, no, that was That was a famous rock photographer, came oh, up with what? In Order. Uh, uh, Xavier, still, uh, st- I saw him recently. Still to this day, he is saying In Order. That's because Malcolm Dome Probably. was mimicking the famous ah, rock photographer... Okay. And Xavier and Malcolm hung out all the time, so it became a, a thing that a they theme, yeah. all said. Um, but uh, but Xavier, son of the filmmaker Ken Russell, yes. yeah. had been to the private school and boarding education, rest of it. Well, he was he was, and he knew a damn good thrashing yeah, what, yeah. entailed. Yeah. And he was the one that described Metallica as thrash right, yeah. metal. I mean, now it's me- so good. It's Within a so few years, good. you had Thrasher magazine yeah, for skateboards. Yeah. But I swear to God, no one in America... Had no, ever, they wouldn't, no, they wouldn't. They no, wouldn't say, oh, no. hey, man, I'm going to give you a damn good thrashing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Big kick, I'm going to kick your ass yeah, or yeah. fuck you up, yeah. shoot you in the face. Yeah. Especially no, if you're a bear. No, I'm going to give you a damn good thrashing. Yeah. Now bend over and yeah. take your <laughs> trousers down. And Ken Russell would have liked that. Ken Russell made many Very, films basically that would, yeah. around that yeah. image, yes. Yeah. So, um, Master of Puppets um, becomes their first mainstream hit, really. They've got a, a deal with a major label in, in America. Well, didn't, okay, can I, yes, can I just interrupt you very slightly? Because did they not... Because I remember there were a lot of machinations about their record deal because they were on Megaforce initially and then Music for Nations over here, weren't they? Yeah, when you say over here, you mean like in the UK? In, in, in the UK Europe, and in yeah. Europe. And then did not, and again, I'm sure I remember Xavier telling me this, the first person who came along was in fact Peter Mensch. The famous manager. The famous manager, and they had the management deal which then led to the record deal. Is that the right way round, official, unofficial biographer? Um not entirely. It was it overlapped. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the only reason I remember that story because I remember Xavier got Peter Mensch to phone Lars at a call box <laughs> so they could speak because they were on tour or something. He goes, "Ring me at this call box." And, and also like? because Lars decided not to tell Johnny Z because he very shrewdly understood what well, if things go south with this guy Peter Mensch. Yeah. We've still got Johnny, yeah, and it was Johnny that was that, that did the deal with Electra, the original. Ah, deal. okay. So they used to say to Johnny whenever they needed to speak to Peter Mensch, they used to say, "I've got to call Aunt Sally," mm. 
laughs. She's like, hey, Johnny, can I use your phone? I need to call Aunt Sally. And he probably thought that was some sort of drug dealer reference or something. <laughs> you know? I think he probably thought they had an auntie called no, Sally. Come on. <laughs> because there's a lot of Aunt Sally's in Denmark. Yeah. Well, no, America at that point. Don't yeah, no, no, but Lars's Aunt Sally would be um, Danish, well, wouldn't yeah, you, uh, yeah. No, that's a fair point. I'd never thought of that, but that's true. But I fear we're going slightly yeah, off, but anyway, but off. But there's all these... There's, what, what you're saying is all of a sudden the, the power of the music business is starting to surround them. It starts so that, these guys are going somewhere. So that Master of Puppets becomes their first gold record in America for over 500,000 sales. That's a huge landmark. I mean, at that point... It was kind of like, well, wow, they've done it. Yeah. They cracked it because yeah. obviously you couldn't imagine it going any bigger no, than that. No. And they, they opened for Ozzy on his American tour that year, which again was another signifier because the um, previous year, Rat had opened for right. Ozzy, who then went right. on to Megastardom. The year before that, Motley Crue. That's right, I'd done the famous tour with Ozzy, yeah. And Sharon Osbourne was really good at that. She'd get whoever was the hot new band to open for Ozzy. And that carried on right through the Marilyn Manson era. Yeah, yeah. He had Korn opening for him at one point, uh, and so on and so on. So Lars is now probably more in his element because... He's surrounded by millionaires and people that are power brokers in the music business. Mm. He's with Electra, part of WEA in America, which is the same people that Motley Crue were with and um, so many other. I mean, the WEA, Van Halen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you name it. Um, and, uh, and so begins the, the rise. Um, interrupted really only by the death of yeah. Cliff Burton. And um, while I was researching my book, Enter a Night, Definitive Biography of Metallica, um, through talking to people, uh, I was able to kind of piece together this thing, which was, once you sort of think about it, it's obvious. But at the time, it becomes a sliding doors moment because um, just before Cliff died, which was on the Master of Puppets tour, mm. but now in Europe, in fact, you know, at Denmark, yeah. um, there was talk, very serious talk behind the scenes about replacing Lars. Wow. Yeah. Cliff wanted to bring in Dave Lombardi, the Slayer drummer. Lombardo. Lombardo. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the old the two-footy... I mean, he the fastest, most incredible drummer, Lombardo, wasn't he? Oh. Amazing drummer. I absolutely. Mean, you know, oh, when um, you think about... Rain well, in Blood. Well, can you imagine? I mean, don't forget, Cliff was an amazing Still bass player. Still that album, Rain in Blood. Yeah. Uh, my my favourite was always South. South. Uh, so, no, no, sorry, not South. Uh, Seasons, Seasons in of, the Abyss. The greatest cover line of all time, without a doubt. On Kerrang. On Kerrang, from Jeff Barton, giving me his credit where it's due. The only man who had, uh, would have the nuts to put a ludicrous joke like this on the cover of Kerrang!, and it's obscure. I mean, you need to even be you a need certain to know age to, to laugh. Yeah, yeah, but the cover line was, "We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the abyss." <laughs> <laughs> Still and makes you, me laugh. It's brilliant. It's my favorite. It's brilliant. Yeah, you know there are there yeah. are there are people all under the age of fifty at this going, point. Going, oh, I don't get it. What's I that? don't get it. Yeah, yeah. Look up Terry Jacks. Terry Jacks. Seasons in the Sun. Yeah. 
and and listen to seasons in the sun. We had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the, the abyss. It's one of those seasons in the sun is one of those terrific death songs <laughs> that's done in a jaunty manner, isn't well, it? Written you know? by Jacques Brel. Oh, was it? Oh, I written know. by Jacques Brel. But it's it's the you know it's the, it's it's like you know tell Laura I love her and all of those, <laughs> isn't it? It's a story song about someone about who's about a dead to person, die. Yeah. about a dead yeah. dead guy. Or dead girl. So in a, it, it, the the cover line was working on a lot of levels. <laughs> a lot of levels. Karan cover yeah. lines did tend to yeah. work on a, a lot, lot of, of levels. levels. There's no way did we just think them up <laughs> off the cuff. Having a laugh, yeah, yeah. never, never. So um, again, all th- these things. So Lombardi, we talk so about Lombardi. In, in, so you've got in, me calling him Lombardi names. Lombardo. You well, you get s- it right. That's what you say. Yeah, I just want to, well, it's like I say, it's Neil Peart, because it is Neil Peart. But anyway. Peart. <laughs> Let's get beyond Lombardi. the names of these drummers. Yeah. And so, so they were actually thinking of, 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 of doing away with stars. Cliff was. Cliff was, because he wanted someone who could keep up with his amazing bass Well, he was an amazing ideas. bass player. Yeah. And, um, I mean, truly, I mean, um, Orion, you know, his special moment on Master of Puppets... Mm. Um, is built around a bark piece. Yeah. Um, Simple lines intertwining. Counterpunctual. Got to get the old count, spinal tap <laughs> joke in there. <laughs> uh, now, it, 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 there's no way of knowing if this is true, but I was told this by quite a few different people that yeah. were there at the time. And it makes sense. I mean... Um, it, 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 you, you, I don't think you can now go. Oh God, wouldn't they have been better if Lars hadn't been there? Because clearly, clearly, that's not true. Yeah. But Cliff dying actually, uh, on more than one level, frees Lars because from that moment on, there will never, ever, ever be anybody with the authority to challenge him. Yeah. I mean, Cliff was the the the, the big fella, the big figure. The, uh, the real kind of like the soul of the band in many ways, a fan favourite. Mm. James Hetfield was still young and nervous. If you yeah. look at the Clifford Mall video, most of the time James is on stage singing. He's looking over to his right to where Cliff is, and Cliff ain't looking at anybody. Cliff's yeah. doing his thing, and um, if Cliff hadn't died, and if Dave Lombardo had replaced Lars. Metallica, I think, A, would never have become the gigantic platinum behemoth they did. No, they wouldn't have made the Black Album. But would they have become perhaps one of... I think they would have almost been at the forefront of like a prog metal or that that almost kind of mathematical... Yeah, they'd just been like Dream Theatre or someone. But, yeah, Yeah. okay, yeah, no, that's a good point. Or, I mean, what do they call those groups? You know, with that really kind of pneumatic, almost mathematical... You mean like Tool and people like that? Yeah, yeah. Or Tool meets Dream Theatre. Dream Tool. Yeah. They would have been a Dream Tool. They would have been, you know, yeah. I can see that. I see what you mean. That sort of very technical metal. Tech metal. Tech metal. And I think they... I think they would have come up with something. I think they've got huge kudos. I think they probably would have been true kind of Goliaths of that underground in the same way of... A slayer, but in a more technical yeah, way. Yeah. But none of that happened. Cliff did die, and um, at that point, it, it becomes fully, I think, Lars's group. Yeah. James is absolutely a, a co fifty fifty partner on paper, but there's no doubt that Lars. 
Lars drives, drives them through this terrible period where they're young men, they're experiencing grief, but I think they've all said subsequently they, they denied that grief mm. and pushed it down into this terrible hazing of Jason Newstead, who was yeah. the guy who, who comes in and in some ways gets the golden ticket of replacing Cliff, but in some ways... Is poison co- chalice. Poison chalice of both of those things, you know, because he becomes the the outlet for the anger that they feel at what's happened. The saintly anger. Yeah, the you, saint you, anger. You might say. Yeah, well, but and and this this strange period begins, which manifests itself in a very strange record called Injustice for All. The reason I call it strange is not because it's a, a not a good record. I mean, there's some tremendous songs on it, but the sound is almost... Dreadful. It, yeah, but it's almost a giveaway of what's happening in the band, isn't it? Because the drums are turned right up. Yeah. You know, the, the, vo- the, the vocals are starting to, in a way, take over as well. You're starting to get a bit more singy type things going on in various places. But it's... It's almost like a psychic representation of this very, very confused, confusing thing that's going on. And there's no bass. <coughs> no, Jason... that's the other thing. There's no bass. I mean, the new bass player. Guess what, guy? You're at the bottom of the mix. You and know. his and his nickname is Jason New Kid. Yeah, yeah. Which, which st- sticks to him like much. Yeah, but for but the rest it sounds all right. Time. I mean, it's that sounds kind of light-hearted, you know. But I, it's it, not. But it's not. No, it's not. It really is not. I mean, yeah. he becomes like the bitch of the band. Yeah. And he suffers. Boy, yeah. does he suffer. Yeah. Um, but, that's think... be- but that's because they make this decision, rightly or wrongly, that as soon as Cliff is dead, they will just carry on. You know, they will just carry on touring. They will carry on. You what know, choice did they have? They didn't, they didn't really have a choice. Do that or go back to yeah, your day exa- job. Exactly, exactly. And, and I, I love the way it's what Cliff would have wanted. Yeah. No, what Cliff would have wanted was you out of the band. Yeah. Lombardo in... Mm. And a whole different it's another future. One, it's another one of those things that you think it would be dealt with very differently today because you would understand more about what people were going through. Back in the... What year did it happen? 86. 86. Who knew about PTSD? Mm. You know, they were all in the crash. I mean, they were... You know, it's not as if... You know, they just yeah. It's not as if they got a phone call saying, "I'm really sorry, your mates died." They all saw it happen. They all knew what happened. Terrifying, traumatic event. But they just chose to brush aside and carry on. Absolutely, that is what you did. Uh, Mm. Whether it was a relative dying or a terrible accident or loss of a child or whatever, didn't acknowledge it. There wasn't really much support. Yeah. No, I agree. And and but that album uh, is my least favourite. Metallica album, it does have wonderful moments like the track One. Yeah. I think that's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. It's the sort of thing Roger Waters would have dreamed of doing on latter Pink Floyd albums. Um, but uh, for me, you know, yes, there's some good moments on it, but it completely is, it's dysfunctional. Yeah. It's crippled in some way. Yeah. The, um, the whole... You feel the absence of Cliff quite literally. Mm. It's not just that there's a new guy on bass or Cliff hasn't had much input into how this record's going to be. It is a complete absence of something. Mm. It's like they've lost their soul or they've lost their... It's like they've gone into the upside-down world and they can't get out. Um, And I think, you know, turning the bass down deliberately... Is all 
horrible things Lars and James did. But in a way, I think it, it, it's almost as if that was a displacement activity. Yeah, as I say, it's a manifestation of what's going on in their heads. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And then, interestingly, the next album becomes the Black Album, yeah. which to me is is for me it's a very much a, again a real. I think that's Lars's first one hundred percent complete control idea. Um, Bob Rock put him through hell with his drumming. They, I mean, I, was, I went to the studio when they were making it. Yeah. And there was a special room, uh, which apparently Lars spent the first five weeks of the album just in the room every day, learning to just play a simple beat. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, of course, is much harder. I remember Lars saying to me, I, I used to listen to Neil Pert, Pert yeah. uh, and Ian Pace, but I've just spent the last few months... Uh, listening to Phil Rudd from ACDC, yeah. just learning how to, you know, keep that beat, my friend. Um, but to an extreme, in the same way that Injustice for All was this highly dysfunctional, very strange, disfigured kind of musical statement, um, the Black Album becomes just as extreme but in a completely unexpected way, this is this is Metallica goes mainstream unapologetically yeah. from choosing Bob Rock, who had just come off uh, doing Sonic Temple yeah, for the cult, the cult, wasn't it? Yeah. Which was Lars's favourite album. It was a great sounding record. Sonic Temple sounds fantastic to this day. Matt Sorum on drums. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, who by the time they make the black album, Matt sing Guns N' Roses. Roses, yeah. But I mean, I think you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this was a sort of turning point for rock, because off the back, I mean, I can, you can hear in the black album, all of those bands that are to come, your sort of Nickelbacks and all of those people who do that kind. Of, but what it has to me that the other albums hadn't had yet is it has this sense of grandeur and myth. And the way they do that is incorporating that sort of almost mythic America, the cowboy thing. All of a sudden there's influences of Ennio Morricone. There's these wide-scale, almost ballads, you know, with very simple opening guitar parts, acoustic guitar parts, brilliant from Hetfield, who all of a sudden finds his voice. You know, he finds, is that, this guy can sing, you know? Yeah. Wonderful, really yeah. good performances, really to the point where they were able to translate that album into a symphonic version of, of itself. And it still sounds great. And it has this kind of great sweep of the American West about it. That's what it kind of conjures up in my mind. And all of a sudden, they're on a much bigger scale, aren't they? That's what they achieve with that record. It's an epic. It is production. epic, yeah, yeah. And, and and that sort of cowboy thing is very much shorthand for that, isn't it? It's brilliant. Because you immediately think of the huge cinema screen yeah. with a, you know, a kind of single lonesome guy going across a vast desert or something. It gives you all of that very quickly straight away. No, absolutely. And, uh, and achieve something that, do you know, I, I wouldn't put it past Lars, but knowing him as I did at that moment... I, because he's it, a tremendously ambitious guy mm. um, and, and determined and lots of energy. Um, I, 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 at that time, I would have said, there's no way Lars actually ever sees Metallica becoming bigger than Bon Jovi mm. because that isn't their, that's not why they exist. 
he wants them to be more important than Sabbath or something yeah, like that, yeah. or Deep Purple. But in fact, they achieve this with the Black Album. They become bigger. And I'm saying Bon Jovi because they were the huge mainstream band yeah. at the time. Here's a better one. Bigger than Def Leppard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. By far. To the point where when they announce, I remember being at Kerrang! Kind of, this surely isn't actually going to happen. When they announced they're going on tour with Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Which, I mean, this was, you, you cannot say that these were the two biggest bands in the world at that point. Yeah. You know, and that they would do, you know, Guns N' Roses, who were maniacs at the best of times, they would, you know, alternate the headline spot, wouldn't they? One night. No, I think, or did they, did no, they... Metallic, again, Lars, Lars and Mensch, because in the same way that Peter Grant and Jimmy Page were the kind of geniuses yeah. behind the strategy of Led Zeppelin, Lars and Mensch were the ones behind the strategy of Metallica. And they were, uh, agreed to uh, alternate. Yeah. But then very quickly before the tour even started, decided there's going to be so many nights when Guns N' Roses will turn up two hours late there'll be some awful incident and then we're going to have to go on and clean it up. So they made it so that Metallica always... Ah, smart move, yeah. They had, they had the same time slot, both two-hour shows, but sure enough, this this becomes one of the most kind of beleaguered yeah, tours. Very, yeah. Shows cancel, yeah. Axel... Um, I think someone threw a lighter in his bollocks and yeah. for the next three shows... Yeah. He had vocal well, I mean, problems. he was a nightmare. <laughs> they were just a nightmare to do. But the, as an indicator of ambition to say, right, we're going on tour with Guns N' Roses, the two biggest bands in the world, it was a huge thing. This is also where Stars comes in because I don't think Axl Rose ever had a bigger fan than Lars Ulrich. Yeah. Um, Lars, when they were making Justice, oh, no, sorry, sorry, they'd made Justice. Justice was out. Um, justice is this. Justice, justice is, is that. Justice is nine, nine minutes, minutes long. long. <laughs> <laughs> that was already out and a big success. And he was flying home from Europe, uh, home to San Francisco, and he had uh, a cassette of the first Guns N' Roses tracks, the first single in the UK, which mm. was It's, it, um, it's, it's so, so Easy. Easy, easy. And Lars told me, he's on the plane listening to it. It's so easy, easy. Can I get a chance? And that bit where Axel goes, why don't you just fuck our car? That's amazing, that bit. Well, Lars was like, oh, my God. And at that point, you have to remember, Megadeth were considered the baddest, most rule-breaking, fuck you kind of thing. He said he heard that and he thought, oh, that's us being nudged down to number two at this point. This guy and this band have taken over. And he became obsessed with Guns N' Roses to the point of, um, you know, talking to Mike Klink, who produced Appetite for Destruction, yeah. talking to him about producing Metallica. Um, and, of course, famously, you know, in the Paradise City video where you see Axl Rose in a white leather <laughs> Guns N' Roses jacket with Guns N' Roses on the back... There yeah. were actually two made. They shared the same merchandising company. Uh, and Lars asked them if they could oh, make a second one no. so that he could wear it. See, he's never been afraid to be a fan, has he, Lars? No. He's he amazing. He's he is the ultimate star. fan. I mean, can you, yeah, I don't know. 
Yeah, it's so you've got Axel in his white Guns N' Roses tour jacket. Only one ever made. Yeah, apart from the one, one, one made for Lars. Oh dear! Well, oh, yeah. how, oh, how we laugh! Yeah, yeah. And then one time I was staying in uh, the Sunset Marquee in LA, and it was after the Use Your Illusion albums had come out and Get in the Ring and all mm. that. And Axel was staying there as well. Um, but Lars had come to visit, and uh, many many drinks mm. ensued, great hilarity. And then at about two in the morning, I literally got to the point where I said, look, i just got to go to bed. Yeah. Uh, so just went to bed uh, in the hotel room. Because, you know, the marquee had those sort of apartments. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and, Lars, and Lars said, OK, well, I'll just go. And he opened my hotel room door and he stuck his little head out just to check the corridor, just in case Axel was walking out. Because he didn't oh. want Axel to see him leaving my room. In the jacket. <laughs> <laughs> No, what he should have done was he should have waited you to go to sleep and put the jacket over you. Just <laughs> and then Luke Frax and said, Axel, come and have a look at this. Not only is it Mick Wall of getting the ring, he's got your jacket. He's got your jacket. You thought there was only one, but he had one made. Why? Just to, he was gonna wear it tomorrow when he saw you. Yeah. Why don't you yeah. kill him? Yeah, in the jacket. Yeah, we'll write another song yeah. called In the Jacket. Yeah. Whose jacket Get is in the it, jacket, mother- motherfucker? <laughs> Get out of the jacket, <laughs> motherfucker. Get out of the jacket. My jacket, you motherfucker. You copying motherfucker. Ripping off the clothes yeah. shop. Yeah, the clothes that Axel L- wants to L- wear. Lying to the kids about yeah. whose jacket that is. <laughs> yeah. Get out of the jacket, motherfucker. Yeah. That's just <laughs> typical Lars. What a plan. Because then he rids himself of his two great enemies in one go. Exactly. Not only is Mick Wall dead, dead. Axel's off the scene in, in prison. Probably. There you go. Him yeah. and Charlie Manson. Yeah. His yeah. idol. Yeah. Um, okay, we're going to skip a little bit because yeah. we're, we're, uh, we're starting Let's to use up. Un- unusually um, for us. We've gone on for a bit too long. Let's we start may have talking gone about the, Let's talk, talk about the, the film and all of that stuff because that was great. The, the falling apart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, yes. Because it's about the perils of success, isn't it? I mean, you, you become, it's like a black hole. You, you become so big, you, you create so much inward gravity that it has to fall in on itself. Okay, but just before we go there, just to say, after the Black Album, the commercial move was to do Black Album 2. Yeah. What did they do? They responded to, They responded to grunge cut their hair, started wearing makeup and recorded Load, which I sold don't even about... I remember that album. Why would you? You're only the yeah. editor of one of the world's best-known <laughs> rock I magazines I was out of it by time. that point. Was this, was, no, this you after, was this after 1996? No, this is 94, dude. <laughs> well, yeah, when you were, you were the boss of a little magazine album, called Raw. They recorded an album called Load. You really don't know this? I, I, if you said to me, what's the follow-up to the Black Album? Okay, and what was the follow-up to Load? Well, I do rem- now I've remembered because ah. Load was so bad, they went in and did it again and they called it Reload. Well, I'm going to stop you right there because I like Load. I like Load. I and like I want to say something else. Go yeah, on. But you, you, you like all, the be- all of the... T- <laughs> this is because he's... What is it? He's so desperate for stars to hear this podcast and go, oh, my God, this man understands me. He, he, you love all of the terrible Metallica albums. No, 
the most adventurous because right. because because here's my point okay in terms of pure metallica yeah i'm a master of puppets man okay right, right. black album i mean justice have one what a track i mean wow and a couple of others but mainly one uh, black album enter sandman uh nothing else matters i really liked oh, at the time okay. Uh, and what was their cashmere? What was that? Um, sad but true. Um, sad but true. I remember Lars saying to me, "Hey man, in the studio, we've done our own cashmere." Yeah. I was like, "Really? Yeah, no, no, seriously." I said, "Play it to me." No, 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 no. You got to wait. You got to. Anyway, I finally heard it. How did it go? Dun, dun, dun. All I remember is the big sad but true. But the it was a plodding kind of dun, yeah, dun, 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 whatever, whatever. Um, so load is everything the Black Album isn't, but it's also everything nothing they've ever done is. Uh, a friend of mine in the promotions business told me that the day the posters went up mm. for their Paris shows in France with them in the makeup, I do remember that. And, they and looked, Kirk yeah. smoking a cigar. Yeah, that's right, yeah. He said that was the day uh, that uh, they uh, they wanted to do three nights at the Big Enormo Dome. That was the day it went down to one. <laughs> yeah. They literally yeah. lost two-thirds of their fans. Yeah. Because, they, let's be honest, I mean, you, you're talking about the casual fan. You, you know, the people who only own the Black Album, they don't buy the back catalogue or anything like that. But if they hadn't made those moves, if they hadn't done Load and Reload, I do think, I do think it enabled them to uh, at least be acceptable to check out by the Grunge Nation. Mm. Because they did some great videos for those tracks. And there were some really good tracks and some not so good. If they hadn't done those, if they hadn't done the movie... Yeah. Which no sane... I mean, can you imagine Bon no, Jovi... No, it was, it, was it was a ridiculous thing to put out because it made them look... You know, they were huge rock stars and it made them look fallible and human... But just ahead of the reality TV... Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was before the Oswald. It was. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, this was this was this was unimaginable at that moment, mm. and they did it. And then, of course, the crowning glory, the album with Lou Reed. Now, here's my two points: is Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Slayer, Megadeth, Guns N' Roses, mm. no other fucking band of that genre would ever even think of trying to do any of those things mm. now whether they worked for whoever is listening or watching whether they go oh god this is terrible or how could they it becomes a conversation piece and it, and to me those are the things that turn you from being a great band into a legendary mm. band i mean the sheer cojones of uh teaming up to do an album with lou reed i mean cliff burton would have loved yeah, that yeah yeah yeah. Which is a weird irony because because diehard Metallica fans, the fundamentalists, see Cliff. He's like their Ayatollah, you know. Yeah. He's, he's the the true metal. Cliff loved Lou Reed, mm. and of course they can't put that together. Load. I mean, uh, we all laughed because it was such an obvious play for the new post grunge market. But unlike, say, Def Leppard and Bon Jovi, who just cut their hair short mm. and made power yeah. ballads yeah. and put out greatest hits yeah. and just hope for the fucking best, 
Or in fact, in Def Leppard's case, they they did slang. Yeah. In about ninety four, ninety five, which was their attempt to say we're Def Leppard, but not that old Def Leppard. Yeah, like yeah, the, they weren't with Mutt Lang, were they? You know, and it, it wasn't. Yeah, it just yeah. wasn't very good. No. And maybe Load wasn't all that good either. But it, it seemed to be more of a statement from them. It really seemed. I mean, it was. Yeah, I, I mean, in many ways, the Black Album was unfollowable because it's always going to be the biggest album of their career. That those phases only ever happen once to a band. Um, so you're right to go off and do something that's you know ostensibly became art rock really by the time it got to Lou Reed was an interesting thing to do and I think that's Lars I think that's yeah. Lars oh you can see him in the film you can see him driving that forward because also I remember in the 80s before they became obviously cool this is um, Justice mm. Tour um, they would be featured in Time Out magazine in the UK, which which Time Out is, you know, it's uh, it's too cool for school. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't get any rock in there whatsoever, but you did get Metallica. They were seen as a very interesting cultural development on the art scene. They would get features in the Village Voice in New York. This is before the Black Album. This is yeah. this is this is you know they're kind of saying this. You, we all know what heavy metal is. It's a joke. It's a lot. This group here are doing something with it that's actually very interesting. Yeah, yeah. And they always had that cachet. And no other rock band, I think Guns N' Roses could have, but blew it really. But yeah, they just became massively pompous and over. And also Axel was a hick from the sticks. Yeah. Whereas Lars was a, uh, a sophisticate. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I truly believe... That's what stopped Metallica becoming status quo of thrash or, or Iron Maiden of, of yeah. you know, whatever genre yeah. they Yeah, I mean, I agree. Represent. If they made an album tomorrow, you couldn't necessarily say what it was going to sound like, which is a, a recommendation in many ways. Well, for me, when they do make the uh, uh, Just What the Fans Want album, which they did with Death Magnetic, the worst I've got, title... I've, well, yeah, I've got to, I'll tell you about that in a minute. Go on, you... you. Well... They released Death Magnetic as I was finishing up uh, my book on Metallica. Enter night. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful, yes. definitive biography. You must get it. Um, that's what they're all saying. Everybody's saying And if you do get it, that's what the audio book sounds like. It's <laughs> great. Um, what were we saying? I've lost my drift. Um, it, well, you got to Death Magne- Magnetic. Oh, I'm going to... Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Here, my last thing. Death Magnetic, fuck me. I tried so hard to like it because it really would have fitted beautifully for the end of my book. Yeah. You know, they've, they've done they, the... They've come back. Yeah, know, they've done yeah. some anger. Tremendous. Tremendous album. Terrible. Tremendous album. Everybody yeah. tells me, drink bleach and listen to St. Anger. Yes. Um, they've done the movie. They've done the orchestral, symphonic. They've done the covers album. You know, they've done it. They've done mm. a million things. And um, and now comes death magnetic, and it was would have been a beautiful ending if I could have said, and here we go, full come full circle, full circle yeah. An album yeah. Cliff would have been proud of. Yeah. That's the that's the headline you're looking for, right? It was rubbish, terrible, yeah. absolutely. And on, did you see him on that tour? No, they had God, coffins, no. coffins for fuck's sake. How spinal yeah. tap yeah, could you get in the yeah. year two thousand and ten or whatever it was? You yeah. know. Yeah, sorry, so you were no, going to say... What, what I was going to say is, I, and I, I've, I thought of this actually as you were speaking, I wonder if uh, the film, because it revealed the sort of 
tortuous process of trying to make this record. And in the middle of the film, for anyone who hasn't seen it, Hetfield goes off to rehab. His life ostensibly changes overnight once that's happened. He comes back a different man. He's not drinking. He's straightened himself out. He's spending time with his wife and children. All admirable things. But part of his rehab is he can't work long hours. He can't expose himself too much to the things that had caused him to drink in the first place. So he's a different guy. And you get this conflict between him and Lars because Lars still wants to record all night and do the things that... And says, oh, you know, Hetfield won't have anyone drinking around him. And Lars says, why can't I have a beer? And so the two stags of the band are knocking heads. They're getting a new bass player at this point because they've not got one because Bob Rock is playing bass on the album. They employ this new bass player. Where does he sit in all of this thing? There's poor, dear, lovely Kirk, who's just basically a kind of stoner surfer guy caught in the, you know, he's the lukewarm water between the fire and ice, you know. And it's, and you, when you see the film, you understand why they can only conceivably make a terrible album. Because everything is wrong. Everything's wrong. There's no creativity from Hetfield because he's, you know, he's head somewhere else. He's not, he's not in the, he's not in the game particularly. Lars is the drummer. Lars can't, you know, as great as Lars is as a drummer, he can only hear someone do a riff and go, oh, yeah, it would be great if you did it like this. It'd be great if you did it like that. He can't pick up a guitar and go, no, no, this is what I mean. Kirk is off. To, I don't know what he's doing. The 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 life coach guy's trying to write lyrics. <laughs> they've got they've found some bass player. They give him a million dollars in this great grandstanding gesture. Yeah, it's all mad. You yeah, know? it's yeah. mad, and that's yeah. why. And that's why St. Anger was a masterpiece. Yeah. Well, it just wasn't. A it's just not <laughs> memorable, is it? It's you know. When you said Bob Rock was on the bass, it reminded me of the extraordinary sound of the bass on that record, which is really kind yeah. of. You know, that sort of thing. Love it. Love it. Because, I mean, Bob Rock is... With corrugated iron drums. By the end of it, Bob Rock's fucked off, isn't he? I mean, he's getting a million dollars a day or whatever. He never worked with them again. Yeah. Never. It's not worth the aggravation that he had to go through. But then, as you said, I say, death magnetic, right? My... Hey, as you, as you say, I kind of had a death magnetic, a sort of blank period in my music biz days. Where was this when you uh, were uh, institutional? I, I, yeah, I was out of the game from '96 <laughs> till uh, probably you were back at Classic Rock and very kindly offered me some things to do. I wasn't back. When well, no, you classic invented rock. Classic Rock, there you are. There you are. Well, I didn't you know, say that. He yeah. did. Yeah, I, I was back. You were at Classic Rock. I was back anyway, and. Uh, uh, anyway, it through whatever, I can't remember. Would you like to review the new Metallica album? <laughs> I said, of course, said yes. Because if when you're a review, you always say yes. Because you think, oh, and also, get, you know, it's going to get be, paid this month. Yeah, and it'll be a big and review. And it'll be a big review. And so, yeah. Okay. Phone Kaz Mercer, their longtime press officer over here. Um, and she will arrange for you to listen to the album. Great. Okay. Phone Kaz. Yes, we've got 
we've hired a lovely hotel room. There's all these things again. There are several people coming, you know, come along. You can come at four o'clock or you can come at five o'clock or whatever. So, you know, we're doing them on the hour because there's tremendous interest. I mean, it's Metallica. You know, it's not just the rock press that want to hear. As you say, by now, they're the heavy metal band that you can write about in the Daily Telegraph. You can write about them in Time yeah, yeah. Out. You BBC can write, Darlings. Probably, yeah, you probably write about Glastonbury on the horizon. Yeah, probably Gardner's World are doing a Metallica feature. You know, who knows? Hunter's Week. <laughs> blood sport yeah, blood sp- yeah it would uh, gunshot is, is it not called the field magazine <laughs> i'm sure they'd be hugely interested in james hetfield's also, bear also, killing exploit sharpshooter this yeah. month's issue yeah. of sharpshooter and, and you know backstreet heroes and all of those ma- anyway so i go to it and go to this hotel go in and there's me and there's you know there's the telegraph over there a few guys and you know it's a Everyone's in there, and Kaz goes right. I'm and if you, re- I'm sure I remember correctly, the album was produced by Rick Rubin, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, oh, yeah, because... which was this big thing of like, oh, you know, they're now with Rubin, and Rubin's exactly the guy, you know, he understands rock, he understands well, metal, well, he's going to bring he did them back. The Sabbath comeback album, yeah, Johnny didn't... Cash, he'd done a, the big Cash comeback thing that everyone had loved and because uh, ACDC, yeah, and, AC, yeah. yeah. So he was he, the guy that would bring yeah. back the classic, the classic, the classic sound. sound. Classic sound. Ignoring the fact that Rubin never had a classic sound. He always sounded like Rick Rubin, which was that very kind of dry, you know, production-y type thing that he used to do. But so we get in there. And God, you know how loud they turn it up at these fucking things. Kaz comes in, puts it on, turns it up, and she, she's out the door, shuts the door. And we're all just sat there, like, making that. Because she said, you can't have a tape of it. You've got to make notes or whatever, you know. So we're listening to it, and it goes on and on. I mean, it's about an hour long. Top volume. It's like a drill going, and everyone's just looking at each other and kind of writing the odd note. Note like, and very loud. Yeah, <laughs> this one's extremely Go, loud. Goes on a really yeah, long time. And even longer, even <laughs> louder. <laughs> so, and it gets to the end. And you know, like, you know, like when you get to the end of a long plane flight or something, and the, the, the engines turn off. But you can still hear the engines, but it's nice that they've turned off, you know. Oh, it's yeah. like that. And Kaz comes back in and uh, she looks at us all and she goes, uh, Does anyone want to hear it again? <laughs> literally, to a man, everyone stood up and went, Nope. <laughs> Big there. And we're out that door fast than I've ever seen anyone leave a hotel, an expensive, lovely hotel room. It was just, Nope. Out off we went. It, it was terrible. You see, I'd take some anger over mm. death magnetic. Oh, so would I, because it's any shorter. Day the... I mean, it's shorter apart from uh, anything else. And, and, and it is, of course, a great artistic yeah. statement. Um, that reminds me of an ex- almost exact same story for the Lutalica album. Right. Metallica and Lou Reed, yeah. or Lou Reed and Metallica. Lulu. Kaz Mercer, same London-based PR for the band. Uh, same deal. We had to we had to give in our foes. Yeah, you all that because because obviously one thing we didn't say, and I won't interrupt you for very long, was you Metallica were at the centre of the whole anti piracy thing right at the very uh, start with Napster, weren't they? Which was, was the whole row. Yeah, last. that was that was. That yeah, was we last. should mention that because that uh, that was a. Uh, I'm sure he regrets that. Well, they were both right and wrong. I mean, I think I think Spotify. A friend of mine who I was trying to, for whatever reason, share a playlist with him. His wife's a musician and he won't have Spotify because 
and he laughs about the fact he's kind of making a stand about it, but it's terrible for musicians. You know, you have to have, you get sort of 30 million plays, you get a check for 50p in the post. You know, yeah. it's awful. See, and this I, was what Lars was kind of, as, as the digitalization of music happened, this was the point he was trying to make. Every artist should own the rights to sell and, their stuff. And because he's Lars, he's articulate, he's yeah. connected. Yeah. I go on TV, you know. <laughs> he's suddenly live yeah. in the courtroom, yeah, because he's a man with a, a cause, yeah. And as you say, at that moment in history, I mean, what do you mean I'm going to? I mean, albums would cost fortunes in those days. Oh, to make, yeah, yeah, yeah. not anymore, yeah. and promote. Yeah. Don't forget, this is this is pretty much 20th century thinking here. Yeah. You spend shitloads on an album, put out an album every two years at the most then tour like fuck, spend millions on videos. That world's vanished. But at that time, Lars is like, well, we're committing all this Mm. and we're just going to give you the album. I mean, it just didn't make any kind of sense. So uh, I was going to say that was a a black spot for him. But actually, again, I think it just illustrates the intelligence of the guy Mm the willingness of the guy to, to go right to the line. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't remember many other heavy no, they were, they metal were, I don't remember Kerry cra- King no, it getting was, up and making any statements. Right, and it was crazy because everyone, you know, that's what led to the downfall of the music industry. I mean, it's rebuilt itself now as this ostensibly a live operation. Yeah. And now COVID's finished that. But, you know, he was right. He was right because this stuff ended up being given away. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no, I know. I mean, I, I think again, that's another but, podcast because yeah, but we're, I, we're side much track. I need we're to side say track. on Lu, that. You, you, you're with Kaz Mercer, and you're off to hear Lulu. Okay. And I've handed your phone in. And I think this will be a good, um, uh, not the last story we will tell, but this is a good way to sort of finish this one because, yeah. uh, again, I, 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 I see the whole Lutalica as an indication of the genius of Lars Ulrich. I really do, because um, James Hetfield would not have really fucking known or cared who Lou Reed was or used to be Mm. or whatever. Uh, Kirk, uh, I'm sure, would have been aware, but I don't particularly... You know, Kirk loved Hendrix. Yeah, yeah. I don't see the Velvet Underground or Lou Reed figuring prominently on his radar. Um, As for the bass player... I mean, yeah, I, I don't see a Lou Reed fan there particularly. Oh. Could be wrong, but what I do see is Lars Ulrich in his endless pursuit of not just, as you say, it's not the the money. The money, yes, of course, mm. but he comes from money. So he's that's always not, had money. He's always had money. This is not some kid off the estate. Mm. This isn't Axel, a juvenile delinquent yeah. with with childhood abuse issues coming off the fucking farm with a piece of grass in his mouth and then ending up in L.A. and running away scared. Mm. Complete opposite of that. This is a brain, a sophisticated jazz, art, superstar, tennis. Grew up in a bloody castle, for fuck's sake. He sees the bigger picture. So, of course, money. But um, credibility. Credibility. Mm. You know, the Rolling Stones haven't made a good album in 45 years, but they will always be the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And always more famous than Led Zeppelin, who sold shitloads more records than the Stones, because of Mick Jagger. Because Mick Jagger knew how to appeal 
to people that would never identify as diehard Zepp or Stones fans. And Lars the same. And I think the reason, you know, they get asked to headline at Glastonbury, which is the coolest festival Mm. in the UK, possibly. It's one of those... I don't think there is an equivalent in America or, or anywhere don't else. Don't think the there is really. No, it's, it's, it's a kind epitome. of weird cultural English thing, and it is and, massive. And yeah. the BBC spend all weekend there, twenty four seven coverage. The bands themselves get paid way less than they would normally yeah. get just for the privilege of doing Glastonbury. Yeah. And who was the headliner on a Saturday night a few years back? Metallica, yeah. in the wake of the Lulu album. Because the Lulu album was written about in The Guardian and the Broadsheets and the BBC and Mojo and all these cool places by people that know exactly who Lou Reed is. And he's on the Mount Rushmore of alternative rock. And he's doing this album with this, one of the coolest metal bands, What's Not To Like. But the metal fans who really have no clue who this fucking Lou Reed is other than he's spoiling everybody's fun. Mm. he can't even sing you know it's like one of those yeah um they hate it now i'm sure lars i don't think he realized just how much they would hate it but in the same way as when he did the black album the same way as when he did load the same way as when he did the movie or st anger i just think he he knew it was a genius thing to do so unexpected Mm. um so I, I and for my money, I still think. Uh, uh, no, I don't play it every day. I, I, I don't play music. I've got three teenage kids. They yeah. play music. Yeah. I play whatever I'm working on. You know, um, for me, it is a magnificent musical statement. But the first time I heard it was in that probably the same. Probably the same. It wasn't hotel. the sanctuary hotel I you went to. Was where it was it? Maybe around yeah. Soho. Ken- no. Okay. Kensington. Okay. I think okay well, a few years on when it's yeah. Blue Reed, it's uh, this place in Soho, and we have to drop off our phones, and it's just like you said. It's not just you know Metal Hammer and yeah, Classic yeah. Rock. It's um, the Guardian, the Times, the Telegraph, the BBC, the World Service. And we're all in there, and Kaz puts on the CD, turns it to fucking <laughs> deafening. Why do they think you want to hear it that loud? I don't know, but it's yeah. awful. Unless it's to stop you talking over it. Yeah, maybe. You know, because if you see your mates, oh, what do you think? You know? Well, in the uh, when I first got in the business in the late 70s, there were always album listening yeah. practically every night or every week. And you'd go because you'd, you'd see your mate. Yeah, it was just a drink and yeah, they'd, they'd have play, it on in the background. They'd have it well, on in the background. They, see, they knew yeah. that if everybody got pissed at a brilliant yeah. time, they, they would all go, yeah, I heard it last fucking, night, it's brilliant. Fucking fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I was at the listening party. Yeah, it was amazing. It was yeah. fantastic. Yeah. No, we had to sit in a chair. We're not even allowed to you know, take home a copy or anything. Make notes while this yeah. fucking assault yeah. goes on. It's an assault. And those, what was it, 65 minutes long or something? Yeah, I mean, long. you're there a long time. Yeah. Even longer and even louder. Yeah. And particularly the last track, um, oh, what's it called? Something Dad? Oh, no. Bad Dad. <laughs> something weird like that. Yeah. And it goes on for nine... Was that written by the uh, life coach? <laughs> <laughs> it's like 19 minutes long. And about 13 minutes of it is just pure sonic noise. 
And of course, we mustn't forget that, you know, Lou Reed, the father of that in many ways, mm. the metal machine music. And there was a famous Velvet Underground track called Sister Ray, which went on for like 17 minutes. And it is just basically proto thrash metal. Yeah. Um, and at the end of that, we come out, and of course, there's a lot of metal journalists there. And me and the metal journalists all go to the pub to sort of do a post mortem. Yeah. And do you know what, John? They were angry. Really? Yeah, they were fucking pissed off. Um, Metallica had betrayed the faith. Yeah, yeah, you can you can see that. I mean, even Alexander Milas, who was then the editor of Metal Hammer, um, and still very much on the scene, very good writer. I, I like, still like Alexander very much because he's intelligent, he's smart, he gets it. Even he didn't really like, even, you know, mm. he just felt it was, you know, a step too far. Didn't like it. Fair enough. I mean, it's not the most likable record in the world. But what it seemed to me that they most of all objected to was the fact that it even existed. Yeah. And as I tried to say, give them some kind of context in term of, terms of Lou Reed, they were like, we get it. We just don't like it. <laughs> you know? Stop te- yeah. and that became the kind of the metal fans who stop telling us we don't get it. Well, they didn't get it, um, but they definitely didn't like it. And um, I always thought it wasn't a case of getting it as 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 letting it, you know. Yeah. Why Do not? You, did so? Did Hetfield like it? Good question. Yeah. See, that's a good question. Did Hetfield like it? Did Trujillo like yeah. it? Kirk. Who knows? I think Kirk's happy to roll Maybe with it. Maybe he's forgotten you know? it. He's <laughs> but Lars, I'm, I'm sure Lars loved it. Oh, Lars would, yeah, I'm sure he would have done, yeah. But as um, you say, he would see the avant-garde nature of it. He would see it as a project, or just another. Yeah. Because he's got the context of the art and the, you know, we think about an artist's career, the different phases they'll have, their red phase and their blue phase or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Times they'll only paint the same door 57 times or something. But isn't that remarkable that, that at, at that stage of the game, when they are now, you know, I don't know, when, when did Lutalica come out? A few years ago now. So they're probably all 50 at this point, something yeah, like that. Yeah. Zillionaires. Uh, you know, the, absolutely one of, still one of the absolute biggest touring bands oh, in the world. Probably the biggest, you would think. Absolutely no need to even make another Metallica album yeah. ever again, let alone, hey, let's get together with Lou Reed mm. and make an album that will entirely confuse and piss off our staunch fan base, yeah. possibly damage our reputation with that fan base. In the same way uh, that, that, that Load did, or the, uh, um, wasn't Spotify, what was it at the time? Napster. Napster. You know, uh, these kind of careless, seemingly careless moves, to me, all come from Lars's big brain, mm. his broader cultural background. And that is why... Uh, he'll be the first to... Last time he rang me, he left a message going, hey, it's your favourite drummer. <laughs> he's so funny. He knows he's not the world's greatest drummer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he might just be the world's greatest heavy metal genius. Well, I think he might... The other Because I suppose the other thing we should mention before we close on that is that we talked about him always having that sensibility of a fan. 
if you look at the way Metallica have curated their fan base, they have a magazine, which I think our old chum Stefan Chirazzi puts Stephen out. Stefan Cheeseburger. <laughs> I never called See him that, that but no. that was his name, yeah. wasn't it? Rightly so. Stefan... I don't think that who, you do. You, that's what you uh, said before. No, I don't know. Stefan, you I know, like him. He, he, I, I do. He's a great man, Stefan. But he and, and and was also a great chum of Lemmy's, wasn't he? You know, he was. So I suppose still him, is. Yeah. Stefan, on a serious yeah. note, yeah. Um, Stefan still works uh, with the Motorhead organisation. Yeah, he's just done. He's work. just done the uh, the sort of commemorative Ace of Spades or something. I think that's it. Yeah, absolutely. He's curated all of that, but he is involved with the Metallica fan magazine. Stroke. I mean, it's an empire. It's not just a magazine, yeah. is it? It's a yeah. it's a huge empire of their fans. But that, the hand of Lars is always there because he had that background of a record buyer, a tape trader. He understands what people want. And if you look at Metallica's the quality of the stuff they've always produced. Yes, they do all the different tour T-shirts and all of that. They're not afraid of making a pound note. But they were the first to do the box. You know, the, you remember yep. the box that oh, they did? Live shit, live shit, binge and purge. purge. And it was one of the very first box sets that was not just a cardboard box. It was a sort of metal container. You know. Now we're getting to it. Uh, he, they also before that. I mean, that was genius. But before that, the one that took my breath away was Cliff Amall. The video, it was in the days of you bought a VHS cassette, right. long form video as it was known. And that came out two or three years after Cliff died. Uh, I'd have to look it up. Mm. Um, but it, it, it was very much kind of after the fact. And it was in, and Metallica never made any videos until after Cliff died. The very first ones they made were for the, the, uh, the um, Justice album. And and they and they again. This is Lars, very shrewd. They turned it into a thing of we we don't make videos, right? Yeah. Because they knew no one had fucking played yeah. them anyway. <laughs> they knew yeah, they, it was yeah. like we don't release singles because no one's going to play it. It yeah. won't sell. But you turn it into we could, we did, yeah, yeah, but we, we don't because yeah. we're different, right? Yeah. But they compiled. They got together all these bootleg videos that fans had taken. Or maybe one of their crew had taken on a, one of those little Cine 8 things. No cameras, no digital video. This is literally just old bits of film. They were like, you see it on like YouTube now, you know, but you get a clip of someone in a balcony with a really shaky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then another one right up close yeah. on the stage. And uh, bits where they were on tour going into a shop to buy beer at night and all this. And they called it Cliff Em All. Brilliant, just yeah. brilliant, and and that video became absolutely one of my all time favourites of that era. There wasn't one professionally shot inch of footage yeah. on the whole thing, and it was an absolute masterpiece. Because, uh, and I, as you know, I worked in that sort of genre, that medium at the time, and. It was all about making it perfect. You know, you've got to get the light and, oh, no, that's no good. You, you can't do that. The mm. sound is a bit weird. Well, no, you can yeah, do you can, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can yeah. do whatever the fuck you like. Yeah. We're Metallica. We do whatever the fuck yeah. we like. Yeah, And and who's the genius behind that? Yeah, Lars. And so I think I think all of that stuff is worth mentioning because they've always paid attention to that and they've always given their fans, you know, the, the value. The other thing I would say while we're on the... On, on the on the 
road to praising them because we've always had our fun with Lars. Let's be honest, he's always been a slightly comic character in many ways for all of those reasons of being a super fan and, you know, the Danish accent, you know, which slowly over the years has become this kind of (laughs) Southern California Danish accent, you know, and everything else that goes along with it. But the other thing they did, and and they have always done this well, is pay tribute to their roots when they went off and made Garage Days Revisited, things they've done several times, and actually you know made made a check for some guys who could use the money absolutely you know they covered songs of bands who budgie for example i think Lars had always, yeah, yeah just bands they'd always liked and who probably needed a few bob and if metallica cover one of your songs you you know you're gonna get a few bob let's yeah. be honest no absolutely you're gonna get a nice little pension out of it and they always did that and i'm i'm sure i understand they've done plenty of charitable things that you never hear about they've got a foundation haven't they i think they've that you know rewards kids and they'll they'll look after people because they've got a lot of money and it's uh, easy to say you do it because you've got a lot of money but only the people who've got a lot of money can do it and uh, no absolutely fair play that they have done and I, and at that point you know you've made really eloquently about him maintaining that connection with the fans mm. you know that 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 runs through everything they've ever done right yeah. up to the present day. Um, even to the point where in the early days of mosh pits, you know, they were the first band where you could actually buy a ticket oh, that's right. to yeah. practically be on the stage yeah. in your yeah. own special yeah. area. Yeah. Um, when I saw them on the Death Magnetic Tour, they were playing in the round at the O2 Arena. And uh, I've obviously seen Metallica many times over the years, and that was one of my least favourite concerts. I just didn't work for me at all too long too loud too long too loud and too many coffins i just thought yeah. this is so cheesy yeah. but were they magnetic <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they sure, probably were been. well that's probably how they were on the lighting but they were just yeah. magnetized just, yeah they're just magnetized yeah. um at the end of the show something happened that i have never seen an in the round show um it's all over they've done the encores all that business and now they should have been snuck off somewhere and that's it. Like the mm. house lights are up, people yeah. are leaving. They came on stage and they literally stood there talking to people. Oh, wow. It's not like it's part of the show. The lights are up, people yeah. are leaving. And they're like doing this and bumping, fist bumping. And, and they're on there for ages. And I'm thinking, and people have now started to come back because mm, yeah. they see them yeah. on there. I'm thinking, this is really interesting. And it goes on for about 20 minutes. And I'm thinking, I love this. It's kind of a weird blend of the grandeur of the show. Because, you know, coming on to the Ennio Morricone, Fields of Gold. Mm. The ecstasy of the gold. Sorry, that's it, yes, yes. Not the Sting song. Never, ever make that mistake. Yeah, that mistake, no, no. Did you notice my deliberate... I was hoping to lure you in so that you agreed and then catch you with an aha, you see. Um, There's a grandeur. And yes, there's a humour. And yes, there's an earthiness and a... It's kind of a cross between, you know, we are metal gods, but also, you know, we're we're, we're not out of your reach. Mm. We're still you kind of went even further they they it, it was completely sort of i'm sure they did it every night but it had a completely unscripted feel yeah yeah a completely lo-fi we've gone back to being some band in a club 
And I remember, um, you, know, you mentioned the Black Crows earlier. Um, I was on a few shows of the Black Crows uh, on their first tour when mm. they are doing clubs. And they got to San Francisco. And who turns up? Lars. And at this point, this is 1990. So Metallica have had the huge top 10 album with Justice. They've had the mega credible one with Master. They are probably the most important metal band in the world at this moment. And he just turned up, no bodyguards, mm. no nothing. And people going, hey, man, cool band. He's like, hey, sure, thanks, you know. Just a guy. Yeah. And uh, you got to love that. Yeah. You know, Slash, God bless him. If he'd have turned up at that show to see the Black Crow, a tiny club, mm. there would have been at least two bodyguards. Mm. You know, there would have been some sort of acknowledgement that someone very important is here and don't come near him. And d People didn't even notice Lars in the corner of the dressing room until they went, oh, hey, man, good, cool band. He was like, yeah, sure, you know. It was just, I, I love that. I yeah. love that. I love that. He's a, he's a, in many ways, a massive contradictions, but as you say, surely the most interesting drummer on earth. Uh, definitely, and I would go even further to say a real mastermind of metal. Mm. Lars Ulrich, mastermind of metal. If you liked this episode, be sure to leave us a review, share it with a friend, or plain old subscribe wherever you happen to listen to it. For full episode show notes, visit nofilter.media forward slash get your rocks off. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want.